This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Hello and welcome to another episode of Crossroads. My name is Kanjanate Porirak. I am an associate professor of Thai language and often co-host. Today I'm, co- I'm hosting alone with um, our guest speaker for this episode. I'm so happy and we have been trying to do something together. I want to say over a decade. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm super stoked that she's here. Uh, her name is V.C. Tang. She's born and raised in San Francisco. V.C. is an author, martial artist, storyteller, and cultural practitioner. She spent most of her career in nonprofit program management and is also a proud alumna of the Berkeley Thai Temple's Performing Arts Program. V.C. received her B.A. in sociology at Smith College and her M.B.A. at the University of San Francisco School of management. She's also a Tai Chi and Qigong practitioner and teacher and Zen practitioner. So she's she does all the things um, that I think is cool and awesome. But today we're going to talk about her 2022 book titled Come Eat Grandma Recipes and Stories of Thai Home Cooking. So the Thai name is Yai Makin Kao. Um, it is a memoir and a cookbook and it's a collection of flashbacks, lessons, and recipes along a personal journey of growth in the kitchen. Welcome, V.C. Tang, to the Crossroads studio. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So um, we're in the studio, and it sounds, you know, more studio-y on on the podcast episode, but it's really like my office with sound (laughs) panels for those longtime listeners. I'm, you know, lifting the veil looking behind the curtain. Um, So today she gave a beautiful talk and a demo as part of her Friday lecture series. And so this book, I was so excited when it came out. I didn't even know it was like just in gestation stage. I felt like it just came out, but it also makes sense um, coming from you. So can you tell us a little bit how this came to be and the process and how did we end up with this beautiful product? I had been encouraged by my friends probably since college to write a cookbook. I taught a Thai cooking class. We had this weird time in between semesters at Smith where they called it J-term. It was January where students basically got the month quote-unquote off, but you could do a lot of enrichment where students or staff or faculty could do a week-long class of whatever you wanted to teach, not really not bound by anything. And so I proposed a week-long Thai cooking class, and it was the first time I had taught Thai food or Thai cooking, and they had just opened up a student kitchen that was open for students to use on campus, so it was kind of just perfect timing. And so from there, I, I had a, a really a packet of recipes that I have drawn from in the years following that. And as I met up with more friends, got deeper into the Thai community in the Bay Area after I finished college, 
more people said, you know, you should you should write a cookbook. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, maybe. And um, the pandemic came. So fast forward a couple decades and it finally became time. And the unfortunate thing is what made it time was there was this rise in anti-Asian assaults and sentiment. And, you know, I thought I'm I'm not a rallier and I'm not you know, a person to blast out my opinions on social media in that way or, um, you know, show my support of a cause in the way that, you know, usually things like that, especially in the pandemic, there were a lot of reasons to kind of protest, (laughs) unfortunately, sadly. And so I said, well, what am I going to do? I do want to do something. And this idea of the cookbook had been sitting there. I had literally spent the first year of the pandemic in my kitchen. Just by default, just I'm at home, we're all at home. I was living with my folks, I was with my mother. And um, what better way to uh, <laughs> to make the experience of being so close mother-daughter relationship in a pandemic you know, more enjoyable and pleasant is to feed each other what we both love to eat together. And so I just kind of really hit the road with deconstructing not only Thai cuisine, but a lot of Asian cuisine during that time. And and it really was a span of a year. I look back on my photos in my phone and just say, oh my gosh, I really did quite a bit of exploration in the kitchen. And um and then it, it just became time. I said, you know, I have all my recipes now. I, I, did, I of course, had to edit them and, you know, uh, gather them and, and, you know, coalesce them into one document. But I had all my recipes and I just happened to also be at a job that um, wasn't feeding me very well. And so I was just kind of at the end of my rope saying, you know, when am I going to get time like this again? I had just quit my job thinking I'd try something else, but I just decided to say, I'm with my folks. We're in a pandemic. Let me write a, let me finally write this book and throw in the vignettes of all of my Thai American exploration community work into it. So that, and it, it was the biggest surprise to me that I had completed a book. I remember the time that I had just emailed the Google Doc to another good Thai American writer friend of mine and said, this is the current state it's in. And they wrote back and said, congratulations, this is a book. And I said, wow. Ah! And and so they they served as my editor and book layout designer. And so that was the moment it made it real. It it ultimately was real also when I saw the images I I worked with a Thai Korean American illustrator and when I saw the images come back that I didn't really need to art direct that much at all and I saw the images come back and I was like this is for real now yeah. once I had a team of people who also believed in what I was putting together and had their own um, not the same personal experiences but their own entry points into their own Thai identity mm-hmm. and you know she was an artist and and my my editor was also a writer. So it just made so much sense and they could connect to it in their own way. And so it 
once I know the process was fast and smooth, I was like, oh, this will be a book now. So I think maybe your reaction is not that far from actually how it it turned out because it was a surprise to me too. Yeah, and and I remember seeing pictures from it and seeing really kind of like deep cut super fan Thai dishes that are not in, you know, Thai menus everywhere, but it was depe- depicted and like cartoonized, if that's a <laughs> word, in such an accurate way, right? And and the concept of like illustrating something, you have to understand the essence of it in order to like make it into a cartoon or like a caricature, right? Mm. You have to have a strong baseline. Mm-hmm. So I was like, who drew this? This is, they have, they have to have a background in Thai culture, you know? And then I saw the name um, of the other members of your team on the book and I was like, I love that person's work, you know? So how, how important was it? Or did you just kind of stumble into an all Thai American team or was that intentional on your part in, in birthing this book? I think I it was part intentional and part stumbling. I originally went with the food photographer and, and I'm still looking for a chance to share some of these photos. It, for a couple of reasons, um, they couldn't finish the, the pro- for their own personal reasons, couldn't finish the project um, because of timing. But actually in the first few, we got shots of about three or four recipes and I was already sensing that I was very pleased with the images, but each recipe was so much work because um, she was a Chinese American photographer and there was still a little bit of explanation I needed to do for example, I had a, a noodle dish and she, what was natural to her was to have chopsticks on the side. And Thai people don't, even when it, only certain dishes would Thai people probably mm. have chopsticks. And But it didn't seem like a natural, when I saw the photo, it didn't feel natural to me. Mm. So, so like the aesthetics wasn't yeah, quite hitting. So it wasn't, uh, and, and some of the cooking techniques too, even though, she had a very good base in Asian cuisine. There were some Thai techniques that I we, we I had fun. We had to do these Doom sessions. But again, each <laughs> recipe was a heavy lift mm. to get her up to speed. And then um, she's she's a student, so that's what there was a timing issue. So we couldn't complete the project. And I said, okay, so maybe food photography isn't it. Because what was great about her is that she was a... Uh, an aspiring chef. Mm. I mean, I, I, I would. So she has an eye for food. Yeah. So she was an aspiring chef. I, I mean, I, I would still find an excuse to work with her. But she's a student at Stanford. During the pandemic, took a semester off to pursue a culinary certificate. Ah. And I said, what a brave thing to do. I, I already want to work with you. Um, and then she was a photographer. So I said, you have like most of the skills that I need and maybe I could just teach you things. And I so I felt like if she wasn't so beholden to a student schedule, it would have worked, but it would have gotten pricey, frankly, on mm-hmm. my end to keep working with her. So we kind of cut that um, engagement short and then it made me question, well, how do I visually want to represent my stories? And there's this group on Instagram called Ties Together that's like a collective of Thai American designers. And so I just pinged them and said, I have this project who might be interested. And 
somebody referred me to another person and lo and behold, I found Emily. And um, it, it didn't take that much because she saw the title of my book and, um, and cried because she had moved to Thailand for a number of years to take care of her grandmother. Mm. And we talked about the logistics of the book after that, but when, when I knew she had an emotional connection to the meaning behind it, I, you're hired. Right. <laughs> I had seen her portfolio, of course, but I, I, I loved her aesthetic. She has this nostalgic feel to her. She had illustrated her own travels to Thailand and Korea, and I said, you know, I think this is pretty close to the mark. Mm. And then knowing that she had an emotional connection to her grandmother, and you know, it was kind of a done yeah. deal. Yeah, and so like no more heavy lifting, right? In, yeah, in and that. it was incredibly fast. I, you know, she would send me, um, I don't know the artistic names for what we did, but we had about three rounds of edits each time, and she would go deeper and deeper, and we'd have feedback about color and tone of them. But she was the one who read the book and proposed to me how each of the how each of the stories should be depicted. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing collaborator. Um, so in a way, if I may simplify, this is your this is your pandemic baby. Yeah. Right? Some people yeah. got pandemic pets, pandemic babies. Right. You had a pandemic. This was my puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Your pandemic pet um, and baby at the same time. So let's switch gears a little bit and, and hear one of the stories that was put into this book. Okay. So this vignette is entitled Conviction. Over lunch one day, after I made a minced pork fried omelet with stir-fried greens, I asked mom, if you had to pick between me speaking Thai or being able to cook Thai food, which would it be? Without looking up from her plate mid-bite, she said, no choice, you're Thai, you have to do both, and kept eating. No, come on, Samut, hypothetically. No, you have to do both. She wasn't playing along. When you were little, if something happened to me, you might have to go back to Thailand. You at least needed to know how to read. And I didn't teach you how to cook. You did that on your own. It didn't occur to me that she didn't see my knowing Thai as a bonus skill or weekend enrichment, not even a proud demonstration of our roots or legacy. It was her emergency plan. It was a necessity. The breed of parents whose children made up the founding class of the Thai Temple School had conviction. They shared my mom's sentiment that there was simply no other way. They drove hours to get their kids to Thai school. They refused to answer any questions their kids asked in English. We are Thai, we'd recite daily, along with other pledges like, Dek di mai du, dek du mai di. Good kids aren't disobedient disobedient kids aren't good. When we rehearsed in the temple parking lot after the Sunday brunch crowds had gone and all that remained were parents, volunteers, and community elders, a small audience would gather to applaud the little pocket of home we created. It occurred to me that this is what our parents wanted, a place to sing their royal anthems, to celebrate and process around the temple to the beat of long drums, to show their children with confidence that this is how you walk around your elders, and this is how you greet them, and this is how you thank them. My temple auntie, founder of the temple's cultural center, told me, who we are is in our hearts, 
not here or over there. They held the kind of conviction where there was no choice between this or that. It simply was, just as my mom said. You are Thai and you need to know this. But the truth is that her generation, the ones who made the migration, made many choices. Some easy, others tough. Some with gratitude and others with regret. My mom's last resort, if things don't work out, contingency plan, that either or both of us would move back to Thailand, never came to fruition. But I could read and relate to my relatives with ease, and those long drives to the temple every weekend and in summer was certainly a choice she never regretted. Thank you for that. And so you got like the early days, right? For those listeners who are not familiar with the history of the Thai American communities here in the United States, uh, overwhelmingly um, large number of us arrived after the passing of the Hart Cellar Act in 1965 that um, ended immigration quotas based on race. Um, we didn't come right away, but a lot of the Thai American communities came late 60s, early 70s, and that was the what uh, Chansey Martorell and um, Tippi Moreland called in their book the pioneer generation. Right, So all of the Thai temples in the United States were built around that time period. Um, Thai cultural schools, Thai churches are a little bit later, but we all kind of came to be in that sense around the same time. So can you set the scene a little bit? What was that like to be one of the earlier generations, right? It comes out in the story as you, you, maybe in hindsight, you realize they have conviction, but as a child, what, what was that like? Especially in an overwhelmingly Asian area of the country, right? But we're like this tiny little sub pocket of being Asian. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's why I said we had to drive far to get there because even though I, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in San Francisco, um, there weren't enough Thai people to warrant a Thai temple that was a close, you, you know, say 10 minute drive from where we lived. We had to cross the bay um, to Berkeley. And that was how a lot of me and my peers got to Thai school. We had a carpool and the parents would, you know, swap driving their kids to summer school. And in those days, you know, I have to say I wasn't the first of the first, but I think I was the first of an official summer school program. I think the the older siblings that preceded me were in the version of it that was held on the weekends inside somebody's home. So that mm. that's what who that's like where a, it was born. A DIY guerrilla yeah. like cultural. Yeah, and the same that the temple was in a converted home, residential home, and when they. You know, I think when it was shown that it had enough legs and enough people to warrant a larger space. And then um, what made it the founding class of a Thai summer school is when it became official. So what I, what I mean by official is there would be a partnership with a Thai Bangkok-based university where they would let student teachers come here and one of their student teaching stints mm. would be to teach American kid, American yeah. born children, Thai language, dance, music, and we'll just see how it goes. Mm -hmm. 
And so I was, that's the founding class I was a part of. And to a child, that's what I didn't understand. I thought we were going to a family gathering or it felt like mm. that because that's, it, it would feel like that because our parents would drop us off. And because it was such a long drive, they couldn't, it would, it wasn't worth their time to drive back home. So they would have to stay. Mm-hmm. And because they had to stay, they would make friends with, all the parents would make friends with each other. They would chit chat while we would be in class. And the food was just food that we brought from home. These days, Thai temples have, at least in the Bay Area, have a reputation for being a place where people, where the entire community at large comes to eat. And that's how the temple generates revenue. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was a family potluck. Right. Or for the school days, I remember my mom said that each parent would volunteer a day and they would cover lunch for the students. And so like that, that's how the students got their lunch. You know, it was summer and a really generous family would say, okay, ice cream for everybody. So it felt, it just felt like a backyard barbecue with classes. Mm. And so I didn't, I didn't understand that there had been an, a partnership established with the university. I didn't understand this idea of rotating monks in and out. You know, there were monks that came from Thailand to, you know, quote unquote, preside over Thai American Buddhists. Right. You know, I didn't understand the organizational workings of it as a child. These were just an, a huge extended family because I couldn't be near my biological aunts and uncles who are still in Thailand. That's how I understood it. And so to this day, as I became a young adult and I started working with them and needed to attend official elder meetings, I said, oh, they actually had meetings to put this together. <laughs> this wasn't like we just like, OK, just it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's, it's Thanksgiving. Let's get together and have a meal. No, it was they had actual meetings. <laughs> you so had to great. coordinate performances and say whose role was what. And 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 then so I I kind of see. And that when I got involved, I was it was alongside my first jobs out of college. So while I was doing AmeriCorps and leading after school programs for immigrant youth, my second post-college, quote unquote, internship or first job was to be an up and coming coordinator within the Thai temple community for uh, at least the performance side. So Thai classical music and dance. So I. I also consider a lot of my professional upbringing having been apprenticed in a Thai community, which I think is pretty awesome. You, you really can't get that anywhere. And we just had, right before the pandemic, our temple just celebrated its 40th anniversary. And wow. the, the people who were the most excited Every, almost every teacher from every year that I had ever had had flown in from Thailand wow. to come. So the whole university department, people who had left the teaching field, you know, they had gone on to other um, for-profit jobs. That is quite a thing to put together. They wanted to come back. I think it was, yes, a vacation for them, but they wanted to come back and be a part of the celebration. And so I saw, it was almost like seeing all of your camp counselors from high school days come <laughs> and see me and I'm you know, in my late 30s. And they're like, ah, you know, so it was such a source of pride for them. They had tote bags printed in Thailand 
to commemorate, you know, of and, course. and had English on them that was spelled incorrectly. Of course. Um, so everything was perfect. They were then. over the moon, though, uh, with this celebration. And, and um, it, it was really amazing because the, the temple has a reputation in Berkeley and the East Bay for its community brunch. And so people, it's a really hip place to come and have an outdoor noodle bowl. And, you know, people come and... And, and what time period was this? When was this hip noodle bowl happening it, in Berkeley? People started coming in, in the, in the, somewhere in the range of the hundreds when I was in high school. So this is since the 90s. And so wow. it, now it's 20 years later. It's an, a, a community establishment. Mm. And so every week you will see hundreds of local East Bay people coming and saying, let's, have, let's go have brunch at the Thai Temple. Wow. And they love the idea that it's not just a cool res outdoor restaurant. It's a place where they can support an actual community. And so when we had this celebration, I had never, I literally have never seen as much food in my life. <laughs> and that's saying a lot for a Thai person yeah, it's really who grew up at a, a temple, so, so by the way. Every single classroom was wall-to-wall -wall tables filled with plates and trays of food like every wow. restaurant pulled through for this celebration and so all the restaurants brought in sponsorships they like probably doubled or tripled their usual output of the temple food that they produce and the temple just said anybody who comes here today eats for free wow and so it i i really like think of that and no i couldn't walk anywhere because it was just so full of food that and people. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I want to be there. <laughs> are you guys doing a 50 year or what? So I can, so I can they know. are definitely doing a 50 year. Oh, I love that. I love that. I'll have to find an excuse to mm -hmm. go. I've actually never visited the Berkeley, the Berkeley. Temple. Uh -huh. um, my, my research field site is in LA. So whenever I go to California, I'm, I'm southbound. Um, but I, I will have to make sure to yeah. go and to go and visit Always for sure. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'll, it's on record now that I'm welcomed. Yeah, it's in a podcast. Um, I'll just use this as a ticket. Sure, I'll have this um, clip play on loop like, at the mm -hmm. gate with the yak or whatever mm -hmm. <laughs> with, the, with the guardian ogre. I shall pass. <laughs> and it's it's still very much you know even though there have been decades and there's a steady a stable source of income and resources it's still very it still feels like very humble beginnings there mm. you know everybody all our meetings um that's why i was so thrilled when i gave the lecture today that we were able to do it on the floor so because i think a part of my apprenticeship of what it means to work in the thai community all the meetings were on the floor still on the floor sitting around a circle and um you know all the all those kind of like and it made sense because we were a performing group. The instruments were already on the floor. So it right. just didn't make sense to go and change rooms and have a, have a conference room meeting. So it still f very much feels like that. There's a, a passage in the book that says, like, you know, I just, I just felt like I grew up surrounded by plates of, like, half-eaten fried eggs and birthday cake just, you know, littered mm -hmm. all around the room and, and just people of every age and generation, just like with no sense of organization at all. So it just f still feels very much like a home still, mm -hmm. even despite all the history and how the programs have developed. They, they really have matured and developed and, 
you know, uh, how people select the teachers each year. You know, there's a rhyme and reason to it all, but it actually, all of that is invisible. Right. To, to the people participating it, mm-hmm. in it anyways. Um, so this book has kind of a snapshot. When I, when I was reading through it, I got, because I'm a big fan of film and visual media, it felt like, you know, every time I blinked, I would open my eyes and it, it would be another kind of another peek at, oh. at your life, you know, and each each page I turn would blink and then this, oh, there's this plate of food, blink, oh, she's in the hospital with her grandma, mm. you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and so that's kind of how I engage with it and I, I try to read it from front to back. Was there, what was the, the process like in trying to organizing all of these stories and which one did you write first and why do you think that was like the first thing that that you wanted to put into words oh okay so I I started the recipes first because that's that was the base I already had I had this packet of Thai home recipes and then I I also when I said okay if I'm gonna set out to make a Thai cookbook I would want to give people what I actually ate in my home and and then also what I ate in my home that wasn't what they would find on a Thai restaurant menu. Because I, I think right. people are getting pretty fluent in certain Thai dishes these days. Right. We're kind of in like a Thai celebrity chef renaissance, yeah. I feel like, at least within my lifetime. Yeah. We're like about as old as the temple, <laughs> yeah. uh, give or take. And I don't think there's ever been as many like visibly Thai food personalities as we have now. I think as, as people are more mobile with traveling and then more adventurous with eating and as people's palates get uh, wider, um, especially in places like the Bay Area, you know, I, I said, but there's still something that's missing in people's understanding of Thai home food. Mm. There's, it still feels different. Like I, th- me going to a Thai restaurant does not feel like the family meal I would have at home. And I think part of it, a lot of the book is about uh, Thai Chinese food because a, a good portion of, of my DNA is is from the Tetiu line of, of Chinese people that immigrated to Thailand. And so I that it's also about my discovery of that side of myself. And it's not represented in any of my cultural practices or language I speak. But when I saw how my mom ate and I was like, what's going on here? Some of your food is pretty Chinese. Mm. And she was like, oh, your yai was was that too. And I, she's been telling me that since I was a kid. But because the Thai temple was so loud, it was uh, such a yes. loud presence in my upbringing, I... And I and I spent my childhood in San Francisco telling people I wasn't Chinese because it's it's a it's a very easy thing to assume that an Asian looking person, especially into, in San Francisco, yeah, in San Francisco, you speak Cantonese, and here we go. And so I just spent my whole time, you know, as I would go grocery shopping, telling people I I don't understand <laughs> what you're saying. I don't speak Cantonese, and so it it was something I had to back off from and say, oh, well, actually. Technically, I I have Chinese threads in my You're family. Like, Surprise! I yeah, am. I am Chinese. <laughs> After all those years. After that whole time, uh, here you go, and um, and so you know, the rest of the book, 
I want to say this is the really crazy part is I don't remember writing it. So there that's were, like that's that's a real thing during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I hope people remember like having their babies <laughs> and, a, yeah. and acquiring and I, pets. I, I, I a, but I it makes sense when you really. say it like that. Yeah. So I don't remember writing it. I wrote the the recipes was a very you know, traditional I would say linear process of just putting them together, testing them and cleaning them up. So that that is was very straightforward. For the vignettes, that's the part I don't remember writing at all and I think just the first draft of getting them out of my brain onto a page was quite quick. It took about 6 weeks. Wow. And there are 13 to 14 vignettes and I think it's just because that time was just a time of complete clearing for me. You know, I had cleared myself of my previous career. The pandemic cleared ourselves of being out in the world and so busy that I just had this moment where I guess I'm writing this. And all I really what all I can't I don't remember writing the the intricacies of writing line by line the vignettes. All I remember is myself sitting on my sofa I had some uh, Nickelodeon Asian martial arts cartoons on in the background, maybe for inspiration. I or see. That, mood that was setting. your writing playlist. Yeah, mood, <laughs> Nickelodeon. Mood, mood setting. And there it was. It was, you know, it had to be, I usually write by hand, but it had to be my laptop because it was coming out that quick. And, and so when people ask me that, they're like, oh, what's the process of writing it? I, I feel like at a lack of how to respond because I don't, I don't remember. Maybe I was possessed in some way, but there were all these stories that I think had already been building in me because I, I think only one of my stories literally happens in the past decade of my life. I think this was me clearing out some of the big life lessons I had going from childhood through my 20s. So um, I wish I could say something, you know, more romantic to aspiring no. writers. No, no, not at all. <laughs> of, how, not at all. of how a book gets written. But also what you were saying about the blinking and you're at a new place in my life and then a blinking and then there, here's another memory I had. I was inspired uh, explicitly by a book I read in seventh grade, which was The House on Mango Street mm. by Sandra Cisneros. And wow. Okay. I can, yeah, yeah. I can, I can see that. that. Yeah, I can see that. Um her book was a much heavier book, but it was like a snapshot into the various windows of her literal neighborhood. But it, it could it, have benefited from um, adorable illustrations. <laughs> I just want to say, yeah, I'd like the um, illustrated version. It was, it was quite heavy reading to have read it in seventh grade. And but what I got from it was I remember being in seventh grade and everything we read for homework was a chapter book. So it felt long. Mm -hmm. It felt like every, everything was a novel for everything to be, you know, like right. literature. That it was had the to school. be a novel. Mm -hmm. And then my summer school assigned me The House on Mango Street. And I read and I was like, and they're like, you're going to read this story for homework. And it was only three paragraphs. And as a seventh grade, that's like cause for celebration <laughs> that homework would take me five minutes. And but that she would convey so much and that I had an emotional connection to what she had to say. And the fact that it was then a book that was assigned to me my sophomore year of high school and again in one of my classes in college kind of speaks to how how potent of a book it is. So that I think that also inspired me that that her vignette style 
um, allowed me to find a form that really worked for me and and that I didn't have to feel like there was a se- an artificial segue I'd have to build from one story to another. Mm. You know, so I yeah, designed yeah. the book just like a cookbook. You know, like one day you might feel like you want a soup. The other day, just open to page 53 and read a story. You don't have to read it front to back. You can just open up a story and um, see whatever calls to you and call it a day and wait till the next time you want to read a story. Yeah, and so now I'm going to try to reread it in that way um, just to see because I guess I'm, I'm a conservative reader in that I go from front to back, but it it it, it gave me that, like, uh, the lack of a better, better word, a blinky feeling um, when, when reading it. Were there particular stories that once the words were on paper, once the idea came that, okay, maybe this is book form, right, and you had mentioned in one of the talks on campus this week that it was really your your friends that you sent these stories to. They were like, oh, this is a book. Were there particular stories that, that felt maybe you weren't ready to share, but in service of, of this book, you decided to share it with us? Were, or were there stories that you decided not to include? There's yes to both of those questions. There was one about, I, I think the ho- the book as a whole if there was any hesitance or nervousness on, on my part, and one of the stories that I typically share for Asian Americans was about how do we orient ourselves to whatever is the prevailing stereotype that we see out there about Asian Americans. And I think because the stereotype I would, I was either not living up to or either in opposition towards, was the one where you don't show that you do the traditional things. You know, that at least in my generation of Asian America, it was more important to espouse that we were born here, we speak English, we are not foreigners. And I think in this day and age, we understand why that's so important. But at the same time, then what do, what do I do with one of the biggest parts of what 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 was for me my Thai American identity which was this multi-generational community that I grew what do I do with that then you know do I am I am I betraying the cause of Asian America if I say that I thought it was pretty cool to do Thai traditional dance right because you had this role in the community where you were whether you perceive yourself as that or not you were an ambassador for tiness, right, in big air quotes and capital T all the time. Yeah, and that I might actually be perpetuating that idea of foreignness by being a Thai classical dancer. So I thought for a long time that something so formative for me was an Asian American no-no. <laughs> ah. And like do not like do not cross this line. Do not do the the dance. Do not do the exotic thing. And um and then, and then, lo and behold, when I kind of turned down the volume on my Thai interests, what did I do? I became a martial artist. So that's the <laughs> other stereotype. Like, not all Asian people are martial artists in the movies, you know, uh, or like kung fu experts. And and then there I go. I become a person who does Tai Chi, which is basically slow motion kung fu. And 
So what do I do with that? You know, mm-hmm. I hang out with aunties and uncles in all my spare time. And I think now, so what, what, what the book became then, you know, if, was, if there was any story I was nervous to share, but in service of the cause of the book, was that now I think is the time where we do have that space. There is that openness to have many stories of Asian Americans and for people to just have the bandwidth to deal with the complexity of that. I think, I think people are growing their bandwidth basically is, is why I was able to pass that threshold that I was not able to maybe 15 years ago. Right. So you just became super Asian. Yeah. Basically (laughs) like I became a walking stereotype by my, (laughs) my previous standards, you know, and, and I was just joking with um, another Thai American scholar at a conference recently about this because, you know, another stereotype that is perpetuated by, um, by the hegemonic dominant culture is that we all know each other. Oh, and right. And sometimes we actually do. And dang it, I do. I do know there are so few Thai Americans in the spaces that, that you occupy, that I occupy, that we end up finding each other like on Instagram. Right. Or we're, we're looking at Thai names um, on conference. And again, that's not an indication of Thainess because you can be Thai without a Thai name, too. Or um, um, I always look at the titles, the ending credits for every film. And I like to play like find the Thai person. Oh, my mom loves that. game. Oh, I, can't. I don't know why she, where she started that game, but it's so natural to her. Yeah. And we would pause like if it was, you know, streaming, we'd pause. But anyways, we do know each other. <laughs> Right, you and I know each other, mm-hmm. um, and actually, I want to talk a little bit about how the context in which we met, because so many of your stories happened at the Berkeley Temple. So, the time where we met, this cultural institution was under threat. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit. I think this is as big of a deal as it felt in our community. It felt like a it was it felt like a forest fire that we couldn't stop. At least from my mm-hmm. perspective, as as a Thai American that's far away, it felt so big. But I don't think a lot of people know about it, mm-hmm. and and what that actually means, kind of in the grand scheme of things, um, as as a Thai person, as an Asian person, as a as an American, as a Buddhist, right? All these things that we are. Ooh, what was that like? So what g- was that time like? Yeah, give us a little bit of like, tell it, uh, the story a little bit of what was happening and like the whole Save the Thai Temple sure. um, movement that had to become a thing. So I I have somehow blocked some of my memory of that time because it was, fair. it was pretty difficult. And what I'll say about that is it came upon us because we had, at that time, we had already been in that neighborhood for decades. Yeah. And this was early 2000s, right? It was, was it later. Somewhere between 2008 to 2011, mm-hmm. somewhere within that time range. And it was interesting because the what opened the door to that conflict was the temple was growing and mm. there was a request for a building permit. That and the temple has filed the temple filed with the city of Berkeley and, and then, you know, as city 
building processes go, you're able to have open public comment. And so when that opened the doors, here, here comes the conflict, is there were some neighbors who felt like the temple and the crowds of people that came to the temple each Sunday um, were a disturbance and that the proposed building was too too obstructive in view in in something or other. And what was this building? What what was the it temple was, it, trying it's to a, build? It was basically a new prayer hall. Like we like in the city of Berkeley, because some homes are considered historic, you cannot you can add, but you cannot uh, replace. Gotcha. Certain decorative aspects. So I think it it makes it a cool architectural <laughs> wonder to see this kind of Victorian, but now Thai temple with serpents running down the stoop. Right, the guardian nagas. Yeah. Um, so, so that's to say that when that happened, it, it opened the doors to everything, both extremes. It, it really wonderful supporters of the Thai temple and then folks who had never had a place to voice their concerns and grievances about the Thai temple. Ah, it's so people how, were just like coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, people just, it was their time to say something. And how it was being said kind of showed the racism of it. You know, like th mm. there were things that we would argue that had this been a Christian church, nobody would, would question that a tall spire or steeple would be a part of a part yeah. of that. And to have that happen in, in a town that historically has been understood in the U.S. Berkeley. as the most progressive yeah. place to be, right? When people think of like the birthplace of the progressive movement is Berkeley. I think that was shocking too. I think to a lot of folks who were already supportive and cheerleaders of the Thai temple, um, yes. And, and I will say, you know, like it, it is it is fair that should you live in a neighborhood and that your neighborhood essentially becomes a site of hundreds of people coming every week there are th that isn't like a neutral happening there are cars and traffic and noise and so so there are things that people um are able to say about where they live however it was how we were being interpreted i think People can YouTube some public comments. I would rather not repeat them. Yeah, but that's the, you fair. know, th there's just just kind of some things that we were compared to. You know, what kind of operation was the Thai Temple running, ah. and uh, being very suspicious and skeptical, and um, and so what it did is it strengthened the Thai Temple's relationship with the official city of Berkeley, mm. um, and it took a long time. I think the hearings took. Over almost two years to kind of completely resolve, and a lot of uh, partnerships. We we got a lot of support, which at the time it was called the Asian Law Caucus. Now I think it's Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Yes, we so have they, a, an office in Chicago. Oh, great! Yeah, so uh, they were a huge um, partner and support to us, and helped us strategize and. Um, and do the right outreach. I became the default PR spokesperson for the Thai Temple. And that was because I, of the team, we were a team of Thai Temple alums, both from Berkeley and from the Thai Fremont Temple. So actually it, it, it strengthened those bonds because if you grew up at a Thai Temple, it almost becomes like, 
they were our rival high it's, school. It's like gang warfare. Yeah, it was like our rival people, high school. Yeah, people will side But our eye. parents all know each other. And so uh, it was cool that they, the the Fremont cousins uh, came strong. And I was all, I, I was heartened as a Berkeley alum to just see Fremont show up. And, and you know, so we have very tight friendships to this day. And um, what was the other thing that happened that came out of it? I mean, now what I remember out of that was, um, I think the comparison. So in my day job, I ran a fellowship for folks who are leaders in immigrant rights. And so I happened to meet the executive directors of a lot of uh, Muslim American organizations. And they said something that really reflected how I felt about the Save the Thai Temple campaign. And when I asked them why did they want to be in this fellowship, they said, I'm tired of defending our people so often. It's almost like, you know, there was one ED, she was on the news every day. And that was during a time of like the Muslim ban. Ah, uh, yeah. And so she was literally on the news every day. She couldn't work. She couldn't do the job of running an organ. So she was on the news every day. And so those leaders, when I would sit down and talk to them, said, you know, we actually have, there are parts about our community and culture we want to share with non-Muslims. Like we actually want to share and contribute. We don't want all of what people think of us is like defending our Existence. Existence. Right, right. <laughs> we, we have, uh, there's more of a vision than just that. And that's how I felt about the Save the Thai Temple campaign. I had been dancing for decades up until that point, And we were, we were on our way somewhere. We were getting, you know, um, we were getting collaborations and our, our work out there was starting to become more sophisticated than dancing at a wedding. Ah, it's I becoming more like a dance troupe. Yeah, and and you know we were we were at Asian American events, you know. So I was getting excited by the work that I was doing and how I could represent Thai performance to an American audience. I I the fun I had was how do I make people interested in this performance of a Hindu epic when they have no context for what this Hindu epic, right. and I would turn it into like, um. I would I would turn it into like the latest pop culture epic. And so I had such fun doing that. And then lo and behold, I have to do this thing where I have to talk about Buddhist practices and why they don't happen in the same way as, you know, a Christian mass and why, you know, so why does a temple need a market? You know, because right. in Thailand, temples have markets. It's yes, they, they they are interwoven. Yes. And so people didn't understand what it why does this religious institution need this revenue generating arm that mm-hmm. happened in a way that was was a food product so people mis- misinterpreted it as a restaurant ah uh. and so i was i was going along my merry way talking about thai culture <laughs> just minding your own business yeah, being a thai along, person and then they're like you are the pr spokesperson for the thai temple and um you know if I were to ever be interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, I did not want it to be for that. So that's kind of how I remember that whole experience. Yeah. I think it created really strong bonds within the community. I think it is also um, 
you know, it's it's really interesting. From that point, Thai temple operations are are. I think pretty admirable and smooth now, you know, how I, I go there, you know, I'm not a regular there anymore. And I go there and I see like, oh, wow, look at how they manage waste here. It's like pretty, cri- yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. so it's I, a different time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it, it helped the Thai temple up its game too, in terms of how it interacted with the wider community. It, it helped strengthen ties within the Thai community. So that's the part I have saved in my memory rather than the parts that were about my friends who had to attend weekend mediations with the neighbors. You know, yeah. that's, that's kind of the part that I, 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 I set aside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that was a time, too, that I remember as, as a Thai American of, of nationwide coalition. As a community, we haven't really come together for anything we haven't had like an impetus and I hated that it was that that was the reason like that we we couldn't have come together to collaborate on something else other than like a tragedy right Mm -hmm. and that's often true I mean that's how the stop Asian hate movement started Mm -hmm. that's how BLM gained traction it's like why do we have to keep congregating and creating coalition and alliances through tragedy, you know, they're, they're joyful things. Mm-hmm. And um, like the creating of your book, it was a joyful collaboration, I think, from the, the feel of it, right, yeah. that I'm reading. So, and we were talking about this earlier too, that we are transitioning into our roles as elders in the community, right? We're kids, we grew up in it, and now we're, we're recognizing that we're being perceived as an elder in the community. So in the context of this book, where do you see yourself as an elder? What role would you like to have in your community? And we can think of all, all the papa, nana, lung, lung, right? Of all the people that we grew up with. And everybody had their kind of role and their niche. And where where would you like to see yourself as, as an elder in your community? Um, I have come to widen my definition of community. So the Thai community, especially the one that I grew up in, the the Berkeley Thai Temple community will always have this special place in my heart. And I think no matter what anybody will ever say to me about my age, I will always be there and always be the, the child of that community you know even I'm I'm back mm. there these days it's almost like we're in our 40s y'all yeah yeah I know and me <laughs> me going home though as long as the elders are are still around and and wow some of them have maintained really great health thank goodness um I you know I so they have a, a very special place in my heart and should I ever or should should it come a time where they need like my my skill set. So for example, they want to perform such and such musical this year and they need somebody to translate the script line by line into English and do the PowerPoint projection. You know, I actually find that fun. Hmm. And and so that, those are the kinds of tasks I will get called in for. Anything that might have to do with, uh, because the elders still play very much a, a, a leadership role, the monks do. That is also to say that they are not the best with technology. So anything that involves navigating American governmental systems would require a call to to one of us 
to go mm. help out. So should anything uh, come up that would require my skill set, I will happily um, return for. But as I widen my definition of, of, oh, what kind of elder do I want to be to the larger community? It's like I, I also did not write this book exclusively for Thai Americans. I would I would be honored if Thai Americans read it and uh, could relate to it in a way that would somehow stimulate their own journey of self-exploration. So, yes, it is for them, but I also did it for anybody who just wants an intimate understanding of how to feed yourself on a literal basis, um, but also on the basis of story. So in terms of the elders, I think my niche in it would be the storytelling because, like I said, I grew up uh, by default getting handed a microphone and saying, you know, translate what this dance is to this audience. And I said, okay. Right. <laughs> so I, I would say I I have stepped into the role of, of storyteller slash guide slash interpreter in some ways of of traditional practices and I've also expanded my practice portfolio to include things that are Asian but not exclusively Thai so that's why I mentioned Tai Chi uh, martial arts practice and my Zen practice so I feel like I'm growing into the role of storyteller. I I still think what has yet to be formed is, you know, who who is the audience that comes to me? I definitely feel the resonance when I'm in a room of Asian Americans. And even though they're not Thai, there's parts of my story that really connect to them. But I'm, I'm still kind of working through, like, who else would benefit from a greater connection to physical practices to stories that have this through line that connect our past to our present and into the next generation. And where can we find this book? We have to plug it. There are lots of ways to find you on the interweb. Where can we find this book? What versions does it come in? What other things? How can they support you in these various uh, facets that you are? Uh, folks can go to my Instagram, Stir Fry Stories. My website is the same, stirfrystories.com. That's where folks can also order the book. And what, whatever my, however my projects evolve, I think they can learn about them. Instagram will probably be the best um, because it has my link tree. And then if you really want to get like the insider um, view, I also have a newsletter where I will be... My writing is going to evolve. So I'm going to continue writing, continue sharing vignettes that are not exclusively about food and community. It's going to continue on. I think about this theme around practice. So uh, if folks want insight into that, then they can go to my website and also subscribe, subscribe to my newsletter. And again, her new book from 2022 is titled Come Eat, Grandma. Yai Makin Kao. Recipes and Stories of Thai Home Cooking, and you can find it on stirfrystories.com. There's hardcover, softcover. You can get PDF version. She will sign it for you. She has these, you are not hyping yourself up enough. She has these great bitter melon um, t-shirts oh, yeah, that uh, has a Thai proverb on it, which is excellent. And I did not realize how popular they were going to be when we were selling it on campus. Neither did I. 
So we can find that on there. So thank you again, VC Tang, for visiting thank our studio so much. and our campus. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantra Kun for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.